Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show, episode one fifty three. I hope you're all doing very well, and thank you for being on this live stream with me this fine evening over here. So, as always, before we dive into the questions, let's take a look at who all is there on the live chat. I can see Unhuman K ten Kumar, World Leaders App Developer five one two one Sandesh, Chidanand Roop Shivoham, Kalind Jitesh Parat Swami Vishak. N Ashish Maurya Intra India Country Ball Dhruv Joshi Prakar Om Bekarikar Akshay Tatakai Heart Hacker Munda Yuvraj Rushi Om Vishant Blind Bandit Kapil Arrow 14 Pritham Manvendra Dhruv Kumar DK Mr Maximus Harshit Badoria Agnishwar Das MEP Sharma is big Martian Akash Shivagami Devi, Sukhada, Sukhada Andare, Aditya Kumar Show, Melinda Dipankar, Mohammad Shah, Rishikesh, Bhavyadeep, Nithul, Arpita, Bai, Ketan, Harshvari, Suman Negi, Arvinder Singh Chahal, The Dark Knight, Bhupesh, My Lord, Suman, Vladimir, Vladimirovich, Putin, <laughs> Samar, Strangely Proton, Deepak. Amayak, AKB, Malhar, Rin, 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 <laughs> Sarthak, Namid, Chris, Wu, Galaxy, Vrup, Jatin, Aditya, Bimla, Shahin, Vahman, Zadegan, The Heretic, Siddhartha, Zander, Toreto, Gopinath, Rushi, Shruti, Pushkar, Heart Hacker, Amanjot Singh, Trupti Patil, Agnishwar, Muhammad Shah, Mr. Maximus. जियोपॉलिटिकल दुबे चिचिंग सुशांत शिवगामी देवी आई थिंक आई एम रिपीटिंग सम नेम्स नाउ सो लेट मी स्टॉप हियर सो गुड इवनिंग गुड डे टू ऑल ऑफ यू ग्रेट टू बी अमंगस्ट यू ऑल फॉर दिस लाइव स्ट्रीम फॉर द आस्क अभिजीत शो सो विथ दैट डन लेट अस डाइव इनटू द क्वेश्चंस नाउ एंड लेट्स सी व्हाट क्वेश्चंस वी हैव दीस डेज यू नो आई एम गेटिंग thousands of questions every week every week it's increasing the number of questions and in every episode i can take about 20 25 30 questions at most so apologies in advance so to those of you whose questions i am unable to take i can only take a bunch so i i have decided that i'm going to take one question per person from now on there are obviously some people who ask lots of questions uh, but i think just to be fair to everybody i will take from now onwards one question per person and that way i can spread it out over as many people as possible and obviously i will take good questions not not uh, questions that have been repeated and have been answered before sometimes i do that because you know it's been a while but yeah i will that's that's going to be the policy going forward mostly one question per person so with that said let's get into the questions what's question number 1 it's by subhodatta do you see a nuclear war incoming as france and poland are trying to give ukraine attacking fighter jets and the us is trying to give long range ballistic missiles and israel is giving iron dome to ukraine well you know a nuclear war is, is you know it, it's certainly a big danger that's uh, upon us there is something called the doomsday clock shall we take a look at the doomsday clock let's google it and find out um let's go to google i'll put that on the on the screen the doomsday clock is about how far we are from doomsday essentially a uh, nuclear disaster so let's see where the with doom do doomsday clock let's search for that this is it 
Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Mm-hmm. It says that it's a time of unprecedented danger. It's 90 seconds to midnight. So it's essentially the closest we have ever been, most likely to nuclear war. That's what this doomsday clock says. And uh, obviously, you, if you scroll down, you will find the details of what it's all about. It's all about blaming Russia for what's happening. And Russia is the bad guy. It's all thanks to Russia. It's always been that way. Yeah. Uh, so according to the doomsday clock, we are very close to nuclear war. Now, uh, obviously, we have had certain events that have kind of, you know, it, it, it kind of pushes us towards that situation. For instance, the Ukrainians a few a couple of months ago, very recently, they launched a missile at Poland. It, it uh, crashed into a village. It, it killed at least a couple of people. And then they blamed the Russians for doing that. They knew what was what it was. It was their missile. They tried to blame Russia for it. And they were trying to drag NATO into an open war with Russia. Thus far, this Ukraine conflict is a proxy war. Ukraine is a proxy of the US and NATO. In, by doing this, the Ukrainians were trying to drag NATO into a direct conflict. They they wanted NATO to get involved directly. So that is something that's a major escalation. Then that can certainly lead to unforeseen consequences, including eventually nuclear war. You know, there's a whole escalation ladder, ladder that's about 20, 30 steps long. And we are kind of midway between into that, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's dangerous times that we're living in. Now, uh, France and Poland are giving fighter jets. Yeah, they're talking about doing that. Uh, how many will they actually give? And even if you, let's say the French give a bunch of Rafales, let's say 10 Rafales. Do the Ukrainian uh, fighter pilots know how to fly the Rafale? It takes several months to train an already trained pilot on a new aircraft. So it's, you know, all this is just talk. Has anybody actually sent uh, these fighter jets uh, to Ukraine? Not not so much, right? Um, And maybe they could give uh, fighter jets that the Ukrainians are already used to flying. That's not happened yet. It's all words. It's all rhetoric. It's all talk right now. It's not really happened. If it happens, even if it happens, like yesterday I was speaking about tanks. Um, the the uh, It's it's a grand total of less than 100 tanks that are going to Ukraine and that too, most of them are like say 1960s tanks. Yeah. So on the one hand, there's this grandiose and very belligerent and bellicose talk. On the other hand, there is this token support to Ukraine. So, um, so let's see if they actually send fighter planes and what kind of fighter planes they send and how many they send. 20 fighter planes, 30 fighter planes will not make much of a difference, right? Uh, when it comes to long-range ballistic missiles, you know, ballistic missiles are, are, are kind of a red line. You can give uh, short-range missiles and all. Long-range missiles are a, are a game-changer and that's a kind of crossing a line of no return, yeah? Uh, if you enable Ukraine to start launching missiles at Moscow, that's going to be a very major escalation. So I, I've not heard of this happening. And if the UK, if the Americans do it, it's going to be a very significant escalation. It's not happened thus far. Israel, when it comes to the Iron Dome system, the Iron Dome system is Israel's anti-missile defense system, which can take out, which can protect Israeli territories from uh, the kind of rockets that Hezbollah launches at them. And also, also I'm sure... Uh, ballistic missiles, scud missiles like the like the Iraqis used to have and, and so on. Yep. Uh, so the Israelis have spoken about, they're thinking about the possibility, they're considering the possibility and weighing the options of whether to give the Iron Dome to Ukraine or not. The Ukrainians had, had uh, requested, they had asked, they had demanded for the Iron Dome, dome system. I think last year, 
October, September or October 2022, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, right now, Mr. Netanyahu is the new is the Prime Minister of Israel, and he's saying that he's considering this this request. You know, he's thinking of, they will they will uh, consider this seriously. So thus far, it's just talk. Nothing has actually happened. But if certain mm -hmm. escalations happen, you're going to have a response to those escalations. So in case the Americans, let's say, give a bunch of F-16s to Ukraine, that can cause a change in the balance of power. And then you will see certain actions that Russia will be made to take in response to such a such an action. If the French, for instance, hypothetically, hypothetically, send, let's say, 10 Rafales to uh, Ukraine, that's going to be a major escalation and the Russians will take certain actions and that's how it is. So yeah, the more such things happen, the more there is the chance of an escalation and escalations can go out of control at times. Uh, that's what warfare teaches us. So yes, we are kind of in dangerous territory right now. I hope there's no nuclear war right now. It doesn't look like there's going to be a nuclear war. There's been a lot of talk about nukes and all that rhetoric. Uh, but one hopes uh, that sane and cool heads will prevail, better sense will prevail, and uh, and there is no uh, significant escalation. Whatever war happens, happens in conventional in a con conventional way. It's it's going on, and it's it's by no means settled the matter right now. So yeah, so thus far things are okay, but you know if somebody takes a makes a stupid choice and does something escalatory, and uh, then that could cause problems could lead us to nuclear war. One hopes that doesn't happen. FFF says, there have been reports that Russia is going to sell 24 Sukhoi 35 fighter jets to Iran. How will Israel and the new Netanyahu government, which has restrained from sending weapons to Ukraine and is more neutral towards the conflict, how is this government going to respond to this? Could Israel soon start sending weapons to Ukraine. Good question. Interesting question. So yes, it is indeed the case that uh, that Russia is on the verge of sending a bunch of Sukhoi 20, uh, 35 fighter jets to Iran. So I think the payment has already been done by Iran and I think the Iranians could start receiving these jets by March this year. That's in a month or two from now. Yes. I'm not sure if they'll get the entire batch of 24 jets at once or whether this will start trickling it, trickling it, trickling, trickling in three, four at a time or so. We don't quite know about that. But yes, this deal is a done deal. And the Russians are on the verge of, of sending, uh, of starting to send these Sukhoi 35 fighter planes to Iran. Now, Iran has very ancient uh, American-made fighter planes. I forget the F-86 or something. I don't remember which one it was. It's quite old, yeah. But if they receive, when they receive these Sukhoi 35s, that's going to drastically uh, increase their war fighting and, and air superiority capabilities. The Sukhoi 35 is a hyper maneuverable 4.5 generation fighter plane. It is uh, one of the best fighter planes in the world. It's not a fifth generation fighter plane, but it's, it, you could say it's kind of in the same league as the Rafale that India has. So the Sukhoi 35 is an extre extremely good and capable. 4.5 generation fighter plane. It's in some ways possibly better than the Sukhoi 30s that India has. So if Iran rec receives 24 of these, it's going to totally change their capabilities. And uh, it could give them a significant advantage over various uh, adversaries and enemies. It could set off alarm bells in, let's say, in Saudi Arabia, in Israel, of course, and uh, in Pakistan, I, I would assume, and, and, uh, and so on. Yeah. 
and it could also i mean if you if you look at the map let's go to the map yes where's the map we must see the map it gives us a better understanding of what's happening so look at the geography we know where iran is i'm sure we all do yes so iran occupies an interesting neighborhood uh, the caspian sea uh, coast is at the north of iran and so is the caucasus region and uh, Ukraine isn't that far away. Neither is Israel, and these fighter planes, the Sukhoi 35s, can certainly go to go and strike Israel and come back to Iran. Certainly within the capability of the fighter plane. So it's going to change the balance of power significantly in favor of Iran once this happens. So how will Israel respond to this? Israel obviously considers Iran a mortal enemy because Iran has been making these statements for the longest time that they want to wipe Israel from the map. Of, of the earth, of the planet. So it's going to set off alarm bells in Israel. Now, how will Israel deal with this is the question. If it starts arming Ukraine, it's not going to neutralize the Iran threat, will it? It's not going to neutralize the Iran threat. And we have to understand why Russia is doing this. Russia is obviously uh, selling this, this uh, weapon system to to Iran for certain reasons. See, Russia needs the cooperation of Iran in order to, to uh, link itself to India via the International North-South Transport Corridor, the INSTC. Uh, this INSTC is going to essentially connect Mumbai and various Indian ports via Chabahar in Iran and also Bandar Abbas. Where is Chabahar? Chabahar is here, as you can see. Bandar Abbas, Abbas is here. At the choke point, the Strait of Hormuz, then the the uh, the corridor will go all the way into Azerbaijan, Baku, through jo through and then into Russia. Maybe it will bypass Georgia. It's not need, there's no need to go through Georgia. So for this to happen, uh, Russia uh, Russia does need Iran's cooperation. Russia also wants to, as as, as we discussed yesterday, they have linked all their banks with the Iranian banks, so they have. Uh, established interconnectivity. So there is this kind of alliance that's happening and Russia is kind of isolated from a significant, uh, to a significant extent because of the Western uh, US sanctions uh, imposed on it. So Russia has been able to tie, to, to, to um, tide over this crisis. It's not exactly tied over, but it's still ongoing, but they've been able to withstand the bulk of this crisis because of their relationship with Iran, with India and with China. These are three major Iran is a junior partner if you would consider Russia and uh, India and China but these three nations are essentially with with whom Iran, uh, Russia is carrying out the bulk of its trade and various other activities so Russia needs Iran on its side and uh, so India and Iran are also cooperating in this matter and there obviously we know about the fact that the Chinese have invested in uh, are in the process of investing about 400 billion dollars worth of uh, money into Iran over the next 25 or so years. That's the uh, agreement that, that they've had. So Russia needs this. And that's why maybe the Iranians have asked for this, that, you know, if you want our cooperation, uh, sell us these fighter planes. So the Russians have done this. Obviously, it's bad for Israel. So the question is, what does Israel do about this? Maybe they could carry out airstrikes on Iran. That's a very drastic thing to do. They've done such things in the past, but... Uh, uh, when you have Sukhoi 35s in the air, it's not that easy to take take those out, especially when the Israelis have the F-16s and whatever else they have, F-18s perhaps. Do they have the F-35s yet? I'm not sure. If they have it, then it could be a more uh, pro. The, the, the balance of the air battle could turn in, in favor of Israel. But yes, so it's... Uh, 
it's a conundrum for Israel. On the one hand, they could arm Ukraine, but that does not solve the problem. When you have such such an issue, you have to solve the problem instead of going somewhere else. So I'm not sure if Israel will take the action, will will choose to start sending weapons to Ukraine. And in, even Israel and Russia have some sort of understanding when it comes to Ukraine. Israel has, significant, has, has restrained itself and it has not... Uh, agreed thus far to send anything significant in terms of military aid to Ukraine and most likely even if they do send something it will not be anything substantial that's how it looks now let's see because starting to send weapons systems and military aid to Ukraine does not solve this problem of the Iranian Sukhoi 35s. So they will have to find a solution to this if it is at all possible. But this is something that's going to happen. The Russians are about to send a bunch of Sukhoi 35s to Iran, most likely starting in March, in a month from now. The deliveries will most likely start from March onwards. So yeah, interesting and we're going to keep an eye on this. Aman Negi says, uh, my question is, if the... If there's a fallout between Turkey and the rest of NATO, what implications will it have on Armenia and the Azer- on the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict? Good question. Let's go to the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. Let's. Okay, it doesn't. All right. So where is Turkey? Turkey is here. Now let's understand the actual, the true significance the true geopolitical, geostrategic significance and importance of Turkey from the eyes of NATO. NATO means the US. NATO is just a euphemism for the US and its satellite states. So NATO, so for the US, what is the importance, geopolitical and geostrategic importance of Turkey? So let me explain what that is. Turkey, if you go to Istanbul, so let's zoom in to the agency. You can see there is this uh, there is this place called the sea called the Sea of Marmara, and this is an inland sea which is which connects the Aegean Sea, which is a part of the Mediterranean, to the Black Sea. Okay, and there are two very significant, very important choke points here. The first is the Dardanelles, the Strait of the Dardanelles, where you had in 1916, 1915 or so this terrible disaster. Uh, the British were defeated by the Turks, by, by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk over here, the, the Gallipoli campaign. So this is a very significant and very important choke point, which is controlled by Turkey. And the other choke point is this one here, right? The Bosphorus Strait, which passes through Istanbul and connects the Sea of Marmara to the Black Sea. And the Black Sea is where the action is, you know, the Crimea and the, the coast of Ukraine, and obviously you have Russia as well, and the Caucasus region, the Western Caucasus region. So these choke points, the Strait of Bosphorus and the Strait of, of uh, the Dardanelles, are extremely important geopolitically because they serve to, if you control these states, these straits, you essentially can choke off any Russian attempt to uh, move warships into the Mediterranean Sea. So that's why it's extremely important. You can you can monitor all Russian activity, naval activity, and you can control it at will if you control these choke points. So Turkey controls the choke points. And that's why the 
for his, since since the longest time the western nations have had this interest in turkey because of this this extremely important position it straddles which is which is the de facto so to say boundary between europe and asia so half of istanbul half of constantinople is in europe half is in asia that's how it is seen these are artificial divisions so the real importance of turkey is this and obviously it's a major country and all that so now let's say so the americans have ensured that turkey becomes a part of nato this happened i think in 1950 if i'm not mistaken turkey is one of the i think founding members if i'm not mistaken of nato and uh, the us has a certain amount of military presence in turkey i believe that the us even may have nuclear weapons on turkish territory and turkey obviously has its own ambitions i spoke about that yesterday uh, mr erdogan has his own neo imperial ambitions he wants to essentially recreate he hopes to essentially recreate the ottoman empire uh, so turkey is an expansionist uh, nation and uh, we know that it has uh, it is in the process it is currently occupying parts of syria uh, and and it also occupies northern cyrus cyprus and all that so turkey is very important and nato or the us cannot afford to let turkey slip away from its grasp right it cannot afford to have have, have that happen because then the americans will lose uh, control over these extremely vital choke points now let's say hypothetically turkey see turkey has been doing things that the americans don't like for instance the turks uh, who were part of the f35 program they were supposed to receive f35 fighter jets the turks decided to acquire the s400 anti missile uh, air, air defense system from the russians they have already acquired it and because of this the americans cancelled turkey's participation in the f35 program so this is something that has greatly displeased the us so turkey is pursuing a semi independent foreign policy which is at times quite at odds with the interests of nato and the us there are the other nation that you can think of which pursues a semi independent foreign policy is france but france is not that confrontational with the us france tries to uh, keep a conciliatory approach even though the americans have at times uh, kind of you could say backstabbed france like the the submarine saga with the australians right uh, so let's say hypothetically the turks uh, break out break off with with nato and and uh, they let's say they 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 remove themselves from from nato or whatever then what does what happens then that would i would say lead to the arrival of democracy and human rights and freedom and peace in turkey which means a us military or, uh, operation that's the only thing one can think of see turkey doesn't have nuclear weapons it has nuclear american nuclear weapons on its soil which are under us control so uh it doesn't have the the luxury of having nuclear weapons it does have a good military and all but it obviously is no match uh, to the us military so what could the us do in case turkey says i'm no, no, no longer gonna you know bend to your will the americans could uh, could instigate a greece versus turkey war they could arm greece substantially they are in a position to do that they could take sides in cyprus and maybe evict the turks from cyprus that's a possibility they could uh, see romania bulgaria all of these nations uh, kind of are on the us side so is greece greece and turkey have a very old enmity so the us could use all that very easily and foment trouble in turkey and maybe do a regime change or or something uh, along those lines 
and now about the armenia azerbaijan conflict yes see uh, turkey uh, the us is is okay with whatever the turks are doing in armenia they essentially want to wipe armenia off the face of the earth they want to finish what they started and could not finish in 1915 um so the uh, the americans could support armenia and uh, so there, there's a there's a whole lot of options the americans have and if turkey goes rogue so to say then armenia also could, could, could you could see an escalation of the conflict there also georgia is a pro us nation i mean georgia has had the, these territorial disputes with russia they really fear russia so the us could use georgia to you know foment trouble for turkey and to supply and aid armenia and bolster its military capabilities so it's a very complex situation and these things could happen in the next 5 or 10 years if the turks feel that the us is becoming weaker and other nations are getting stronger and maybe they will feel that now is the time to make our move so these possibilities are there so yeah that's the kind of thing that could happen turkey is extremely important especially because of the two choke points that it straddles between the mediterranean mediterranean and the black sea and of course all these other issues so yeah many things could happen and we can't really predict how it goes but these are the possibilities Christoph Becker says question from Germany what role will other cultures play after India and what the west calls hindu nationalism finally takes a dominant global position in the future interesting question see uh in yeah the west always keeps on ringing this alarm bells with with what it calls uh, the hindu nationalism hindutva nationalism all those things see hindu nationalism is very simple it's not uh it's not expansionist it's it's uh, it's not xenophobic it's not supremacist hindu nationalism is limited to a very small thing it says that indian i mean you know uh, what it it calls hindu nationalism is is the desire of the indian people to have a strong sovereign and independent india and uh, in india that reclaims its lost territories that's all if you look at i mean we know what territories india has lost I, I am not talking about the concept of Akhand Bharat over here. I'm talking about Jammu and Kashmir and Aksai Chin, and, and that, that's essentially all it is. So, um, so Indians desire a strong, independent, powerful, sovereign, self-sufficient, and and advanced India. And the West doesn't want this to happen. So it portrays this this these aspirations of Indians as Hindu nationalism. Mr Modi has been one of the most secular prime ministers you can imagine and they keep on any read any uh, article in the west about Mr Modi the first thing they will say is hindu nationalist yeah so so first of all hindu nationalism is is a misnomer uh, most indians are i mean they you know they, there is no sentiment whatsoever of of india being an expansionist nation and india being a hegemonic nation that will impose a one world order order over the world so first of all this this fear that many people seem to have because of this misportrayal is completely unfounded so now the question is let's say hypothetically in the future maybe 20 years from now maybe 50 years from now whenever it happens if it does whenever india becomes a uh, the dominant force in the world india takes a dominant position in the world what role will other cultures play so let's let's see, look at times in the past when this kind of thing has happened uh in the past 5 6000 years it, there have been times when india has been the most 
economically india has always been the most powerful nation but at times india has also been militarily very powerful when it every time it has been unified under a single empire we can think of uh, the mauryan empire the kushan empire the gupta empire and this, uh, later uh, to some extent under the, under the chola empire which actually was an expansionist empire for some time so during these times what happened firstly india did not go and try to conquer the entire world indians indian emperors never basically ventured beyond the boundaries of the indian subcontinent the there are a couple of exceptions one can think of uh, uh kanishka obviously he conquered much of central asia and uh, what is now called xinjiang but there was no cultural imposition or there was no atrocities there was no brutality as such here yeah. so that is the case then uh during the gupta empire india did co- co- conquer bahlika and all that which is back to what is now called bactria the gandhara tajikistan turkmenistan region so that was a brief period then you had lalita ditya muktapida who conquered large parts of central asia and also tibet and then you had the cholas uh, about a thousand years from to, before today who conquered essentially the entirety of southeast asia all the way to the philippines so whenever these things have happened the cultures that uh, have been affected by this have by no means uh, been made to to be to play a, a a secondary role or they have not been sub, uh, subjugated india has never ever been culturally hegemonic nation india's culture did spread far and wide but it spread through peaceful means i mean look at china china it may not appear so today but china has been under an enormous amount of indian cultural influence and this was done without sending a single soldier across the himalayas japan much of japan's culture is of indian origin so the same is for, goes with south korea uh, indonesia it's it's the golden era of indonesia's history was when it was a hindu empire the majapahit empire and philippines and all that and yet you can see even if you go to these places today you will see the indian elements of the culture and you will see the uh, the distinctive indigenous culture also that's mixed with it so india has never imposed culture by force india has never made other nations and other cultures uh, force them to submit and pay tribute uh, or any such thing so in case india becomes uh, the dominant uh, nation in the future the dominant civilization again in the future i don't think it's going to uh, affect any of the other cultures in any a negative way at all see india itself is an extraordinarily diverse and pluralistic civilization if you travel 50 kilometers in india just 50 kilometers the dialect changes the cuisine changes the traditions change and and it's an extremely diverse and pluralistic place and yet it is all just one culture and one civilization it's a big umbrella called indian culture and indian civilization it is despite all these differences and extreme diversity which seems to be very different superficially it's still one culture and one civilization so india is very much used to diversity and pluralism and that's what indians really love so india would not want the world to be a monoculture today we have this globalism movement which wants to try, turn, turn the entire world into a monoculture everybody wears the same clothes everybody has the same thoughts everybody eats the same fries and burgers and pizzas and that sort of thing that is horrible that will make the world an extremely dull boring 
and monochromatic place. We want multicolors. We want the world to be a multicolored place. So India is the epitome of this. India for thousands of years had had has had hundreds, maybe thousands of languages and dialects and lots of different local manifestations of its culture. And if India does become a dominant culture, the dominant uh, civilization, I think there could be an actual efflorescence of more diversity and pluralism in the world as compared to the kind of monoculture that's there are attempts to impose a monocultural kind of thing on the world from a couple of different angles. So I think the opposite of that will happen if India does take a dominant global position in the future. I think you will see an efflorescence of, of uh, diversity and pluralism in the world if, if India takes the leadership position, if it does happen. So I, you know, so I would say to our friends outside of India, please uh, do not be misled by all this propaganda about Hindu nationalism. Uh, Hindu nationalism, what they call Hindu nationalism is just the desire and the aspiration of Indians to see a strong, united and sovereign India. And that's it. India has no aspiration of, of taking over other nations. We have Nepal with which have, we've had this very ancient relationship. I mean, Nepal... Nepal has been a sovereign state for the past, uh, I don't know, 200, 300 years. And, uh, and we have this very interesting open border system with Nepal. So Nepal is a very, very much a sovereign nation, but we have an open border. And the people of Nepal have the right to work and live in India. And they also have the right to serve in the Indian armed forces. Can you imagine that? Allowing citizens of, of a different country to serve in your armed forces. So that's how much trust and all that is there with Nepal. In the future, you could have this sort of thing with Sri Lanka also. And India is never going to try and take over Nepal, uh, annex Nepal or Sri Lanka or anything else. This is this is just fine the way it is, you know. So I think if this uh, if India does take a glo global globally dominant position in the future, it's actually going to be good for other cultures. India will never try to subjugate any culture or or. In, indulge in cultural imperialism ever. It's never happened. It, it will never happen. It's going to be good for the world if if India does take a, do, a dominant global position. Okay, Siprakar says, can you explain the doctrine of discovery? Very interesting doctrine of discovery. So what was this doctrine of discovery? The doctrine of discovery, it's, it's, uh, it's what's led to colonialism and all the 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 destruction of native cultures across the world by by the Europeans. So the doctrine of discovery was a principle of international law, uh, which was used by European colonial powers to justify their expansionism and their occupation uh, of land in the Americas and in other parts of the world, Africa, uh, Asia, etc. So what was this? It's, it, where does it originate? It originates with the church, with the Catholic church, the Vatican. It, I think it was first uh, enunciated, enunciated or codified or articulated by a pope in the 16th century. I think it was Nicholas V or VI or something. Yeah, This guy issued what's called papal bulls, which are like decrees or laws. These papal bulls granted European rulers, kings, the authority to claim lands and and people and the people in those lands as long as those lands and people were not under christian rule so if you are let's say a native in the americas and you're not christian then you can be taken your land and your and, and you yourself the people can be taken over yeah so you become the possession the property 
of these European monarchs. And this was, so this was given sanction by the highest Christian authority, the, the Pope himself. And then this doctrine of discovery was used to justify European expansionism and colonization by claiming that these lands and people who are not under Christian rule were discovered. And therefore they were open to occupation and exploitation by Europeans. So it's like you discover a new species of animal and then it becomes yours. That's the kind of uh, attitude that was there. And this eventually became a principle of international law. It was used by European colonial powers to claim territories like in, in the Americas, North America, South America. The Spaniards took over South America. And the French and the, the British, etc., they and they fought over North America. The Spaniards also took Mexico. And then there was Africa, there was Australia and Asia also. Yeah. So this doctrine of discovery was used to usurp, to seize lands from the indigenous peoples, the native peoples, and to completely disregard any notion of the fact that they may have sovereignty and ownership over the land. Totally disregarded. And see the plight of the native, uh, of the Australian Aboriginal people today. It's it's horrible. And, and the Native Americans in North America, good God, what atrocities they have suffered. Yes. So this doctrine of discovery denied these indigenous people the right to their land and to their culture also. It, there was cultural genocide all over the place. So these people were treated as savages as uncivilized, primitive, almost subhuman people. And it was uh, taken as, as, as an undeniable fact that these people should be subservient. There was slavery, rampant slavery. Look what Christopher Columbus did to the Arawak people, for instance, to the Carib people uh, on, on the island of Hispaniola, which is now Haiti and all that. Yep. Uh, so this was a horrible thing. It was used to justify all kinds of exploitation of the people, of their lands, of their resources, uh, whatever resources were on the land. This led to genocide, extreme, I mean, widespread violence, multiple instances of genocide, enslavement. And with the Europeans came various diseases in the New World, in the Americas and all that. So that's what the doctrine of discovery was. Now, it's interesting that there is this, uh, th there was this Supreme Court judge in the US. Let's, let's Google this lady, shall we? Google. Let me put this on the screen. Not this. Let me put something else on the screen. Let's do a Google search about this wonderful lady who they worship here, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg. All right. Now let's add doctrine of discovery. Doctrine of dis discovery. So this lady who is, uh, you know, portrayed as a champion of, of of the oppressed and of human rights and of, of women and God knows what else. She's almost deified today. She died, I think, in 2020. Let's take a look at this article. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's notorious opinion in the Native American sovereignty case is also part of her legacy. She said, your lands were taken from you, taken from you illegally, but there's nothing we can do for you now. History and the law are written by the winners. So the Oneida Indian nation, they were trying to reclaim some lands in the state of New York. And uh, so these, these people, these Native uh, Americans, they did not even have the right to uh, have any recourse to the law. I think until the 1970s, until the 1970s, they did not, did not even have the option of going to the courts. Then they went to the court in uh, 97, 98 or something. 
or somewhere around there, right? And they uh, petitioned the US Supreme Court, I think, or whatever it was. Supreme Court, yes. And they, they asked for the right to the lands that were stolen from them. So this is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. Given the long-standing non-Indian character of the area and its inhabitants, when she says Indian, it means Native Americans. So given the long-standing non-Indian character of the area and its inhabitants, the regulatory authority constantly exercised by New York State in its counties and towns in the Oneida Indians' long delay in seeking judicial relief against parties other than the United States, we hold that the tribe cannot unilaterally revive its ancient sovereignty in whole or in part over the parcels at issue. It means too much time has passed since everything went, since, since you were, uh, your land was stolen from you. So any remedy now after the passage of time would be too disruptive. It would not be fair to the non-Indian landowners in the region uh, and so on. So the tribe... Uh, the court must prevent the tribe from rekindling the embers of sovereignty that grew, that long ago grew cold. Uh, yeah, courts were closed to these people, to the Oneida Indian tribe until 1974. So how do you expect them to pursue their legal claims? Yeah, incredible, incredible. So this was all done on the basis of the discovery doctrine, doctrine of discovery. So you can read this article. It's it's a horrible tragedy. What's what's be what's still being done to the Native Americans in the United States and across North America? Yes. Uh, so that's how it is. So yeah, Justice Ginsburg seemed to say your laws were your lands were taken from you illegally, illegally. But even if the law says those sales were of no are of no effect, there is nothing we can do for you now. It would not be fair, not to the white people who make up the majority of the population in the claim area. This is how even today the Native Americans are marginalized and it's clear that these lands were taken from them illegally and still they are, they, they are not given any uh, justice. So that is the doctrine of discovery still in action today. It's not something that's long dead. It's still in action today in the United States and maybe in other English-speaking nations as well. Let's take a look at Australia, maybe Canada, maybe elsewhere. I'm, I'm, I, I invite you all to, to do some research about this. I'm sure you'll find interesting examples of more of the same. So that's the doctrine of discovery. Horrible. Samir Naik says, why did Britishers, what's the Britisher? I call them the British. We are not Indianers, right? <laughs> I don't know. Indians use this term all the time, Britishers. Anyhow, that's that's different. Okay, let's go back to the question. The question. Why did the British hand over the Andaman and Nicobar Islands to India, which is of, which is far away from India, but nearer to other countries, for instance, Indonesia and Thailand and Malaysia? And it has a huge naval domin dominance in that region for India. Asking this question because the British wanted uh, to avoid the rise of India again. Good question. Let's take a look at the map to understand uh, the how far this is. In case some of you don't know, I always like to open the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. So this is where India, I'm sure we all know where it is. And this here is the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Uh, north of the Andamans is the... Yeah, so this is the archipelago in, in question. The southernmost island is uh, this one here, Great Nicobar, which is just about how far is it from Indonesia? I'm sure it's less than less than 
yeah, it's about 211 kilometers away from Indonesia. So it's very close to Indonesia, very close. So the question is, why did the British hand over these islands to India when other countries are closer by, like such such as Indonesia? And uh, it obviously gave India a huge advantage, naval advantage in this region. So what's the, what's the reason? What's the cause? That's the question. It's a good, it's a good question. So uh, let's understand why the British left India in 1947. Do you think they wanted to leave in 1947? No. They obviously understood that now India is no longer the cash cow it was. We have sucked everything, all the blood of India dry. India has been totally destroyed. There's almost nothing left for us to steal from India. So they were, they actually wanted to leave India in a proper step-by-step manner, in a, in a very, what you would call an orderly withdrawal or orderly retreat. But something went wrong What after, 90, after the Second World War which ended in 1945, there was the events of 1946, the, the great Indian naval rebellion, which spread like wildfire in the Indian Navy. Just almost overnight, all of the ships in the Indian in the British Indian Navy, they had rebelled against the British crown. These ships were as far east as Singapore and as far west as Oman. And obviously you had a bunch of ships, like seven, eight ships, maybe seven ships, uh, naval ships, warships in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. So this mutiny, start, they call it a mutiny, it's a rebellion. It was, uh, so it started in Mumbai, it spread to Karachi and Vichakapatnam and other places. And the British, uh, not the British, it was Mr. Gandhi. The great Mr. Gandhi was able to nip the rebellion in the bud with the help of the great Mr. Patel. So let's not go into the history. I have a separate video about that on this channel in case you are interested. Yes. So what happened is that the Indian Navy, the British Indian Navy, which was stationed in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, it participated in support in, in this rebellion. It supported the rebellion. The British realized that it's, uh, you know, the Indian Navy can, can control these islands easily. And no matter what we do, the Indians, once they take control of the Navy, uh, they'll be able to retain these islands. In 1946, sent the British in a panic. They realized that the, if the armed forces rebel properly, the British rule over India will be over in about 24 hours in a, in, in, in a very bloody way. That's why they were so hasty in getting out of India and they left India by 15th of August 1947 very rapidly. It was not the original plan. So they were not able to break India properly into multiple pieces like they would have liked to do. Right? This 1946 rebellion uh, it it made them leave India very hastily. So that's one reason. And uh, the Indian Navy was very capable of, of defending these islands. And historically, see, understand this, that historically no other nation has ever had a claim on these islands. Uh, but historically, India has used these islands from time to time. The Cholas used this, they they used these islands as a staging post for their uh, naval invasion of, of uh, Indonesia. So the Cholas, a thousand years ago, were using these islands. The Marathas, the great uh, Ad Maratha Admiral Kanoji Angre, he also used these islands as a staging post for his navy. Uh, during the Second World War, the Azad Hind Fauj, the Indian National Army, was in possession of these islands nominally. It was actually the Japanese that occupied the islands, but it was nominally in the hands of the uh, 
of the uh, Japanese. So India has always used and had possession and claim on these islands. The British would have liked to break India more and maybe hand over these islands perhaps to Indonesia, perhaps to somebody else, but they were no longer in a position to do that. So, and, and the other thing is that none of these other nations, the so-called, uh, the, the neighboring nations like Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Myanmar, none of these nations made any claim to the island, to these islands. They all accepted the fact that these islands belong to India. They have never disputed this. Uh, in 1965, the Indonesians tried to play some mischief, but the Indian Navy was very strong in this region. So, yeah, the Indonesians supported Pakistan in 1965. And it seems that they had sent, you know, reconnaissance parties of the Navy into the region, but the Indian Navy was very strongly present and uh, the Indonesians could do nothing. So these are the reasons why the British, were they, they had no option but to hand over the Andaman and Nicobar Islands to India because India would have anyway taken over the islands whether they, they liked it or not. So it was essentially a fait accompli and that's what happened. All right, let's take... The next question. Rudrajit Sarkar says, why did the Somalia-Ethiopia war happen? What roles did the two superpowers and their allies play in this conflict? Uh, did this war pave the way for Somalia's financial and political crisis? Very interesting question, Somalia. So let's once again take a look at the map to understand the context. So where is Somalia? We know where India is. Go go westwards and cross the sea. And here we are at the Horn of Africa. This region is called the Horn of Africa. It's essentially Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti. That's what it is. That's the, that is the Horn of Africa. So this war happened in the late 1970s. I think uh, 1977-78, if I'm not mistaken, that time period. And uh, at that time... Ethiopia was ruled by uh, a bunch of army generals or army. It was ruled by the army. And it was under army rule and it was a Marxist nation, Ethiopia at the time. And Somalia was at the time a socialist nation. At that time, Ethiopia was supported by the USSR and Somalia was supported by the United States. The US was supporting Somalia at the time in the 19 in the late 1970s. So there was this uh, disputed region called Ogaden. Where is Ogaden? Will it show us on Google Maps? Ogaden. Here we are. Okay, can you see this? The highlighted region that is called Ogaden. I'm not sure what the exact uh, pronunciation is, but you get the meaning. So this region was under dispute because it it, it was a Somali majority region. Most of the people, the majority of the people in this region were of Somalian ethnicity. But this region was under Ethiopian control. And that was the dispute. It is still under Ethiopian control. So that was the dispute. And the Somalis, and this was also a geopolitical thing. It was also part of the Cold War. The Americans were supporting Somalia. The USSR was supporting Ethiopia. And both these superpowers were vying for, were, were jousting for influence in Africa as well. So this essentially became kind of a proxy war. This, I think the Somalians were the first, uh, they, they fired the first shots. They invaded the Ogaden region. Then they, they took over much of it. And then the Ethiopians responded. They retaliated. And 
the USSR sent in lots of supplies, arms, ammunition, weapon systems. The Cubans under Fidel Castro sent more than 10,000 troops with all kinds of weapons and all that. And because of this foreign assistance, the Ethiopians were able to repossess the territory that the Somalians had taken over. And the outcome of the war was that Somalia lost this conflict, Ethiopia won. Even today, you can see that this straight line boundary, which is very typical of, of Africa, is a dashed line on Google Maps, which tells you that this is still a disputed boundary. Uh, so that is what the war was. It was about this Ogaden region, disputed region. The Ethiopians won because of USSR and, and, and Cuba's support. And uh, this was a victory for, for, for the USSR, essentially, in, in the Cold War. Um, so that is the role that the two superpowers and their allies played in this conflict. Now, this war, like you say, it, yes, it did pave eventually for Somalia's financial and political crisis. So the Somalian government, uh, so because of this war, because of the intense militarization of this entire region, you had lots of different militias that, that popped up in Somalia, who were all fighting for the, the freedom from Ethiopia of the Ogaden region. So th there was the appearance of multiple centers of power, which is never good when they are all armed, yes? And obviously because of the war, there was this extreme, uh, there, was, uh, there was this uh, economic crisis and the, the economy of the region went into the doldrums. It uh, of both the nations suffered a lot. In Ethiopia, there was this very major famine in the 1980s. I think 1984, 90, uh, 1985. It was terrible. So that's the kind of situation you had. And Somalia also was greatly impoverished. And, and you know, in, in geopolitics, there is a significant delay between cause and effect. In any sport, in anything, there is a delay between cause and effect. So in this case, there was a delay of about 14 years. And in 1991, eventually, the government of Somalia collapsed and Somalia descended into civil war. And the Americans tried to intervene. There was this warlord called Mohammed Farah Aidid. The Americans... Uh, sent their troops to Mogadishu. There was this terrible battle of battle of Mogadishu in which, I don't know, more than a thousand Somalian civilians were massacred by the American troops. But the Somalians were able to take a few Americans prisoner and I think they were killed or whatever and their bodies were dragged over the streets and it, it, it came on the cover of Time magazine. A disaster for the Americans. It was during the Clinton administration. So these are the things that happened and uh, I, I would say that certainly it's this war, the Ogaden War of 1978-1977-78 that paved the way, that, that started a chain of events that led to the uh, to the fall of the Somalian government and the and and the descent of Somalia into civil war. And Somalia even today, you know, it's, it's kind of a lawless place and it's extremely uh, it's it's an extremely hard life if you are a Somalian citizen. So all of this started around that time. So yes, a very interesting question that Rodrajit has asked. Krishna Saraf says, I started reading the Unabomber Manifesto and I have come to really agree with Ted Kaczynski. What are your, your opinions about his theory? Interesting question. I'm not sure I have discussed the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Let's Google Ted Kaczynski, shall we? Give me a second. Let's put that on the screen and I'll uh, let's talk about him. So Ted Kaczynski was a mathematical genius. He was a mathematics pro professor. He was a genius. Let's Google him. Ted. 
I hope that's the spelling. That is indeed the spelling. His name is, he is, he's still alive. His name is Theodore John Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Uh, so he was, a, he is a mathematical genius. He is a former mathematics professor. Uh, he was in University of California, Berkeley. He became an assistant professor, I believe, at the age of 25. He wrote multiple research papers, very high-quality research papers in mathematics. I'm sure you can find these research papers online. And obviously, he also wrote the Unabomber Manifesto. And I'm sure you can find it online. Let's Google it. Unabomber Manifesto. Here it is. I'm not sure if you'll... Yeah, here it is. You can actually read the entire text. It's about twenty-five or 35,000 words. And the top, the title of this is Industrial Society and Its Future. So that's about Ted Kaczynski. Now, the question that uh, Krishna has asked is, I started reading this Unabomber Manifesto and I've come to agree with Ted Kaczynski. So, you know, lots of people agree with this manifesto. It's a very well-written manifesto with extremely good arguments. And these are the arguments not of a madman, but of, of a very intelligent person. Let's see what the uh, manifesto, what, what people have said about it. Um, yeah. Somebody from the New York Times wrote that if this is the work of a madman, then the works of, then the, then the writings of many political philosophers like Rousseau, Paine and Marx are scarcely more sane. So he's saying that this is the work of a very intelligent man. It's not the work of a madman. This is not madness. Right. So what, so you can read the manifesto. You, you just have to Google it. So what did Ted Kaczynski say? What, 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 what are the, what is the core uh, thought process or philosophy or, or the, the central arguments of the manifesto? First of all, he says that he criticizes modern society. He criticizes the effects of modern technology on society. He he says that industrial society is fundamentally unjust and oppressive. So this sounds like what Karl Marx said, doesn't it? But Ted Kaczynski was anti-left. He was not a Marxist. He was anti-left. Uh, so he believed definitely that industrial society is fundamentally unjust and oppressive. And he called, he also called for a revolution. Ted Kaczynski. He called for a revolution to overthrow the current system and establish a more sim simpler, a new way of life, a simpler way of life. Not a revolution of the proletariat in which there will be a dictatorship of the proletariat and a new society which is all egalitarian, everybody has the communist society. He did not ask for that. He wanted to have a, a simpler way of life, uh, which is closer to nature. That's the that's what he wanted. And he said that industrial society is reducing the quality of life for individuals and it's also causing environmental destruction, which is completely correct. It is very true. Both these arguments are true, that industrial society is reducing the quality of life for individuals. In the past, people were so much closer to nature. The pace of life was much slower. People had more time for contemplation, for family, for scholarly pursuits, or whatever trade they were they were uh, indulging in. Today, life is so fast and, you know, quality of life has deteriorated. And obviously, there's a lot of environmental damage and destruction. And he said that uh, the rise of technology has led to an increase in psychological and physical suffering. Well, I think the statistics 
will show you that this is indeed true. The rise of technology has led to an increase in, in mental illness and depression and uh, various psychological uh, problems and also physical suffering. People have become more sedentary. Rise of The rise of lifestyle diseases like coronar coronary heart disease and, and uh, diabetes and much more. So all of this is a consequence of the rise of technology. And uh, Ted Kaczynski criticized the spread of uh, technological influence, including the media and the government. He also said that uh, technological, he also argued that technological progress is not inevitable. It can be stopped. It can even be reversed. He was not anti-technology, but he was about keeping society and human life closer to nature and not make it so uh, wired to technology. The One of the controversial things that he says is he called for uh, a reduction in the, in the size of the human population through voluntary means, not through what Karl Marx or Stalin or Mao would have done, but through voluntary means. So maybe a slow, gradual decline in the population, not some abrupt, drastic thing. And uh, <laughs> And the other thing he wrote about is that he believed that the current economic system and the current politi political system is controlled by a very small and very elite group of people. I think lots of people believe this today. And I think there is evidence that suggests that this may indeed be this may indeed be true. We call it the deep state and, and what the some people like to call it the Illuminati or whatever. So Ted Kaczynski was was, was of the opinion that this is the case. A very small elite group of group of people essentially control the political system of the world and the economic system of the world. Essentially, they, they run the whole world, a small number of people, maybe a hundred people, maybe one maybe 150 people. You will even see Chamath Paliha Pitiya saying the same thing. So, yeah, so Ted Kaczynski was, was of this opinion. Um, so he essentially said that the industrial revolution was a major turning point in human history. And he said that a new revolution is necessary to save humanity. Otherwise, we are on the path to destruction. So it's kind of gloomy and kind of pessimistic. And he said that a revolution is necessary. Otherwise, we will be on the path of destruction. So essentially, this is the Unabomber Manifesto. Industrial society and uh, what is it called? The... the um, yeah, so that's the Unabomber Manifesto, uh, Industrial Society in its Future. So I don't think this is the work of a madman. I think this is the work of a very intelligent mind. You may or may not agree with everything Ted Kaczynski said, but most of it is undeniably true. And it's all backed up by evidence and statistics. It's not a theory. It's not, some of it is, well, theoretical, if you want to, if you want to call it so. But overall, he wanted a better future for the world. He was very concerned about the direction in which the planet is going. And it's, it's, it's ever since he was apprehended, things have become much worse. So the thing about him is that he kind of went rogue and he became a domestic terrorist. He sent these mail bombs to universities uh, and airports I, somewhere else. I'm not sure. If you, and it killed a few people. He, he was living in isolation in a cabin in the woods. And it's his brother, I believe, who eventually became suspicious and notified the US authorities. And they eventually caught him, apprehended him. And they discovered that, yes, it is indeed this guy who is the Unabomber. And he's now in jail. I think he must be around 80 years old. So that's the deal. So I don't think, um, uh, you know, I don't think he was entirely a madman. This manifesto makes a huge amount of sense. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's my opinion about this. Karun Bihari says, is it po- possible to modify the DNA of living humans and solve various uh, inheritable health and men- mental issues right away? Skin disorders, depression, etc. Is it already happening? Greetings from the Netherlands. CRISPR. What is CRISPR? Let's let's uh, Google CRISPR. It's a gene editing technology. It's a revolutionary technology that has totally transformed um, transformed the world. Essentially, it's on the verge of transforming the world. What is CRISPR? C R I S P R. CRISPR. Clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. So that's what it is. You can you can Google it. That's what it is. So CRISPR is a gene editing technology. It it allows whoever uses it to very uh, precisely change or edit the DNA of uh, of an organism. So it can be used to to create genetically modified organisms, GMOs. You can. Uh, use CRISPR to introduce certain uh, characteristics in, let's say, a crop, in wheat or rice or any other any other plant. You can use it to introduce, to, to change the DNA or, and characteristics of various organisms like insects or even human beings. So uh, it is indeed possible to use CRISPR to solve certain health problems. There are certain... Uh, certain mental health issues, let's say schizophrenia, which are indeed inherited from uh, parent to child. One of the most famous examples is the great mathematician, John Nash, John Forbes Nash, who was a schizophrenic. And uh, he was, and schizophrenia is this uh, condition in which people experience hallucinations, they hear voices, they kind of start living in an alternative, alternate reality, and they kind of lose touch with the real world. It's extremely, extremely uh, severe in some cases, and it kind of passes from parent to child. So John Forbes Nash, who eventually was able to overcome this and win the Nobel Prize, his son is also a mathematician. He also has schizophrenia. So the thing is, I'm not sure we have discovered the set of genes or whatever it is that that causes schizophrenia. It's clearly something that's inherited. So it has to have a genetic component. But we haven't discovered, as far as I know, the specific gene sequences that cause schizophrenia. If it is discovered, then it may be possible to use... It will. If it is discovered, then it will be possible to use CRISPR to edit that those sections, those segments of the DNA and possibly end the problem. And there are various illnesses also that are inheritable and all. So if, if uh, one can determine, pinpoint the exact genetic sequences in the D, if, in the human genome where which lead to these diseases, then it, was, it is certainly possible to edit and remove them. So it is possible today to do these things. Uh, the thing is, the thing is that CRISPR also can be used for other things. It can be used to create designer babies, which is problematic. Let's say uh, you have a couple who are expecting a child and they want their child to be so much feet tall, maybe six feet tall if it's a boy or whatever. I'm just, it's all hypothetical here. Let's say you want your child to be at least six feet tall. Let's say you want your child to have green eyes. Let's say you want your child to have 
red hair let's say you want your child to have this specific shade of skin color and let's say you want your child to be extremely muscular or, or whatever of high percentage of fa- of fast twitch muscle fibers uh, whatever you know so you could do all this eventually with crispr so that raises a lot of ethical issues are we playing god and whatever modifications we are making are we sure that they will not have uh, adverse effects downstream 7 8 10 generations downstream when you can no longer control what's happening and it also will create a big divide in society be- be- between those who are rich enough to afford this and those who are left out so the rich will ensure that their descendants become are, are genetically superior to the poor people and then that will cause this incredible divide in society so there are all these ethical issues in crispr but indeed it is already definitely possible to modify to edit precisely the dna of human beings and introduce various characteristics or remove characteristics it is possible today it's already happening and uh, yeah so yeah that's where we are today and this these technologies will only become more advanced as the years go by priyanka says good evening good evening uh, what's the future of nanotechnology i took this subject in my masters degree and it was quite interesting so i read a lot and i thought that it's going to revolutionize everything in the near future but i don't see much practical progress so far i guess it's been slow what are my thoughts about this so nanotechnology is is it's actually the future a progress may not be that visible see whenever a new technology comes in into the well whenever a new technology appears it is first appropriated by the military and uh, it is used for various military purposes and eventually a few decades later the, the spin offs of that technology trickle down into the civilian domain so so you mean we and there may be some technologies around that we may not even realize are because of nanotechnology so nanotechnology is is the manipulation of materials and substances at the nano scale nano scale not the quantum scale but the nano scale so first of all you have medicine and healthcare nanotechnology will revolutionize medicine and healthcare it will lead to the development of all kinds of new more effective diagnostic tools and treatments and drugs for diseases it will we can create advanced materials and devices using nanotechnology uh, let's say you want to create an extremely strong material which is extremely light today the strongest materials are typically metals like steel and all that but they're quite heavy but what if you have a material that is stronger than steel than steel but let's say a third of the weight that would be wonderful you can have all kinds of wonderful applications of that so high strength and low weight that sort of thing so that's the kind of advanced materials you can create with nanotechnology you can create uh, nano devices consumer electronics you can create nanobots that can go into your blood stream and clean out whatever clots or plaque you may have in the heart you know that's the thing um clean energy um, more effective more efficient uh, methods of energy production and energy storage you know better lithium ion batteries or maybe batteries of other types that we could create using nanotechnology batteries that can store more charge and for a longer duration this will help us reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and mitigate the effects of climate change all that um, 
one can use nanotechnology for water purification uh, more efficient uh, methods of water purification we can use uh, nanotechnology for cleaning up pollution let's say you have an oil spill in in, in the ocean which happens from time to time oil spills so let's so what about creating a nanotechnology solution to cleaning up an oil spin spill cleaning up pollution etc then obviously nanotechnology has as uh, uh, applications in computing increasing computing power more advanced computer systems right now we have the silicon wafers that are just one level deep but you could have entire stacks of this if you can master that if, of course the heat is an issue but yes this will eventually happen then uh, space exploration food production there are so many applications and of course all of this has military applications so i think there is a huge amount of potential in nanotechnology eventually let once again when it comes to military applications air jet engines jet in jet turbines jet turbine when you have a jet engine let's say a fighter jet let's say let's say any fighter jet that, that travels that flies at mach 2 twice the speed of sound these jet engines become extraordinarily hot thousands of degrees celsius and no matter how hard your or strong your steel is steel is it's going to melt so you need special materials for that and you could create those using nanotechnology so all of this is going to happen through nanotechnology the progress may not be that visible because typically this technology comes wrapped up in something else and it doesn't you cannot really tell that it's based on nanotechnology but yeah uh, there's a lot of work happening in nanotechnology um and eventually we will realize in 10 20 years that much of the progress may have actually uh, been thanks to nanotechnology it's very interesting it's a very interesting subject and it's typically in india i think it's taught in various iits indian institutes of technology so yeah that's what it is the future is great for nanotechnology maybe the way the teachers teach it and all that is kind of not so fascinating that's what teachers typically end up doing in india but the, i think the future is great for this field nishant says the ancient 1500 year uh, sorry the ancient 11500 year old site gobekli tepe located in modern day turkey is said to be the oldest known proto city in the world my question is is there any other proto city or settlement in the indian subcontinent which was older than this one which is backed by actual historical and archaeological evidence excellent question i'm not sure we have discussed gobekli tepe so let us discuss gobekli tepe let's go to the map where is the map here is the map and the map should be now on the screen okay let's go to gobekli tepe we have to go to turkey it's actually quite close to syria in eastern anatolia now i will not be able to locate it unless i search for it so gobekli tepe and zoom let's go in there and here we are so let's first zoom out and orient ourselves where is it yes it is indeed close to syria now let's zoom in and let's take a look at this place this this uh, archaeological site for once and then let's discuss what the question is so here it is this is the archaeological site of gobekli tepe now let's see the size of this archaeological site how big is it so let's uh, do a measurement of distance from one end to another i'm taking a larger distance than than is necessary it's about 300 meters so let's say this is a uh, 
from from east to west 300 meters and north to south 300 meters so you can see it's a very small thing and the actual site is much smaller it's under this dome so that is barely let's say the distance it's barely 50 meters 50 meters and over here it is yeah it's it's approximately a circle which with a radius with, with a diameter of 55 meters that's all the archaeological site is and if you want to take the larger area around it it's about 300 meters in diameter that's all it is so this is not a proto city it's just one archaeological site it looks like it was some kind of temple or 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 some kind of place of worship or something maybe a religious site it was by no means a city or even a town or even a village it's just one small archaeological site yes it is indeed uh, dated to be about 11500 years old so it's not a proto city it's just an archaeological site and uh, so that's the deal let's zoom out there it is that's gobekli tepe now let's come back to india and the question is is there any old forget about proto city is there any other older archaeological site in India. So when it comes to the Saraswati Sindhu phase of our history, the oldest known archaeological site is Dhirana in Haryana, which is dated to about uh, about 9,500 years before today. So they did carbon dating and the oldest samples were 9,500 years old, which dates back to about 7,500 BC. So that's the oldest known Saraswati Sindhu archaeological site in India. But we know that there are thousands of unexplored archaeological sites along the dry riverbed of the Saraswati and along the Indus and other river banks also in this region. So there are thousands of sites that our archaeologists have not even explored thus far. So it, I think it's highly likely, first of all, that there could be much older archaeological sites in the Saraswati Sindhu region, in the Sapta Sindhu region, and maybe in other parts of India as well. Now let's come to other parts of India. Let's talk about uh, Let's go to southern India. Uh, so between Puducherry and, and Chennai, uh, the ASI, I don't know if it's the ASI or who, who else it is, but Indian archaeologists have been doing underwater archaeology over here. And just last month, in January, they announced the discovery of a submerged city uh, about 80 kilometers or so north of Puducherry in the sea under the sea. It is at a depth of between 50 to 100 meters. And this city, this ancient submerged city is spread out over an area of approximately 250 square kilometers. It's a large archaeological site. It's it's uh, the preliminary investigations show that it's uh, it, it could be about 10,000 years old, if not older. And it looks like they have rediscovered the lost city of Kaveri Pumpatnam of the first Sangam period. And the first Sangam period dates back to 11,500 years before today, if not older. Yes. So we need to see more data come out of Kaveri Pumpatinam, which seems to be Kaveri Pumpatinam. But if it is so, then this could be definitely older than, uh, than Gobekli Tepe. Now let's come to, uh, where is it? Dwaraka. So Dwaraka, they, we know that this city has been discovered, rediscovered. It's off the coast of, uh, of the present-day Dwarka. The Mahabharat-era Dwarka city is submerged off the coast because obviously of uh, global warming and, and a tectonic event, an earthquake, which was described by Arjun. He witnessed this happen, the city being swallowed by the, by the sea. So this city, they found a piece of wood over there, which is about eight and a half thousand years old. 
so there again we have an old city and the more interesting thing is the gulf of kambat so this city here is the old port of kambat in gujarat and this entire region is called the gulf of kambat and they have uh, archaeologists indian archaeologists have discovered an entire network an entire complex of multiple ancient cities submerged in the gulf of kambat it's an entire archaeological complex of multiple cities and these cities are laid out in exactly the same manner as the great say, cities of the saraswati sindhu civilization like mohenjodaro harappa rakigari and uh, kalibangan etc the same grid system the grid uh, grid structure of streets in the same uh, style so these cities that are underwater in the gulf of kambat are in the same style and they have the same exact same characteristics as the so called harappan cities now these this archaeological complex is at a depth of about 80 or 100 meters under the ocean and the last time this this that portion of the of the of the bottom of the ocean was above water was around 9000 or so years before today because of global warming the sea rose and these cities were swallowed by the sea and most likely these cities could be older so these cities could possibly be 12000 years old or older right the thing is our archaeologists are not doing their job go ahead send underwater explorers pick up some pieces of of uh, pick up some artifacts date them and tell us what date it is i just don't understand why there is nothing no work being done in the submerged city of dwarka or in the gulf of kambat archaeological complex which was discovered more than 20 years ago nothing is being done there the asi has the money the asi has the personnel but they are not doing this for whatever reason so because our archaeologists are not doing what we are paying them to do that's why we don't know if there are older cities in india older than gobekli tepe i promise you there will be so that's why i keep saying we need to disband the asi entirely shut it down and create a new organization a professional organization of professional archaeologists from scratch young people who are driven and who are fascinated and curious and obsessed with archaeology pay them well give them the funds and the resources and see what they find but we're not doing it <laughs> anyhow so that's the deal yeah so that's what that's the answer i can give you okay descendant of rigvedic clans says in the saraswati sindhu civilization both cremation and burials are found including yajna pindadan and and all that and uh, mundigak culture which has ruins of forts temples etc it's closely related culture to saraswati sindhu civilization people so maybe it's also possible that the saraswati sindhu civilization people also built forts temples etc what's your thoughts on this interesting question so what is this uh, mundigak culture it's also called the helmand culture let's google it okay let us google that give me a second let me place that on the screen and we're going to google mandigak culture which is also called helmand culture right so the wikipedia will say article will say helmand culture first let's look at the images okay let's go <laughs> let's first go to the wikipedia article as always let me remind you all wikipedia is not necessarily a reliable source of information especially when it comes to indian history i'm just putting this over here for reference but do not ever 
believe Wikipedia 100% and I'm going to close this. All right. So yeah, the Helmand culture, which is which dates back to 3300 BC, is a Bronze Age culture that flourished in the Helmand Valley. It's essentially Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Gandhara and westwards. That's what it was. And this culture dates back to about 3300 BC. And yeah, it does say that these people had cities and temples and palaces, a complex and advanced social culture. So if you have temples and palaces and, and all that, you have advanced culture. If you don't have temples and palaces, then you are backward culture, even if you are fully urbanized, weird. So the main cities are Shahri Sokhta in Iran and Mundigak in Afghanistan. Uh, these cities have the same culture and all, all that. Um, what else does it say? It says there are, there are also a few connections with the Indus Valley civilization. But it seems that the Helmand civilization was earlier. This is what Wikipedia tells you. I'm showing you in real time where Wikipedia is lying to you. Okay, It says that the Helmand civilization was earlier and did not overlap chronologically very much with the cities of the Indus Valley. That's what it says. Yeah, Helmand civilization, the, the, the Helmand culture begins 3300 BC. Yes. Now let's Google something interesting. Hmm? Let's Google mature Harappan. Let's see what Wikipedia itself has to say. Periodization of the Indus Valley Civilization. So remember, Helmand culture, it says, was 3300 BC. So what is early mature Harappan? It's 4500 BC, which is way before Hel Helmand culture. And yet the other article says that there was no overlap between Helmand culture and, and Indus Valley culture. What utter nonsense. So there you have in real time, I'm showing you how Wikipedia lies to you. And the Harappan culture, actually the so-called Harappan culture begins around 7,500 BC. They call it pre-Harappan, whatever. You can give any name you want, but it's the same culture. It's, it's the same cultural continuity that begins around 7,500 BC, almost 10,000 years before today. So what they call Harappan culture clearly predates the so-called Helmand culture. And it is definitely, it was contemporaneous with Helmand culture. The so-called Harappan culture well, it still exists over here in India. We are all descendants of the same culture, the same civilization. It never ended. It merely dispersed in different parts of, of India and elsewhere also. So Helmand culture ended around 2350 BC. Apparently it ended. Uh, so now let's take a look at Helmand culture and what it looks like. Let's take a look at the pottery, shall we? So yeah, it had these big columns, monumental architecture. You can see this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can see this statue of a person or carved head. You can see these various utensils, the, the face of a bull. Let's go there. Um, now, this is exactly the same kind of uh, statuettes and figurines you find in the Saraswati Sindhu region. You also find in Mundigak. And still they are saying there is no connection or very little, little connection. Here is more. You find exactly the same thing. This again. There you go. A bull. It's an Indus Valley bull. It's a, it's a Harappan bull. It's an Indian bull. The same bull here. This is again Mundikak. Look at the pottery. You find the exact same pottery in the Saraswati Sindhu archaeological sites. The same pottery. The same patterns. The same style. The same stylistic elements. Yeah. Uh, the same uh, leaves. Even the same leaves. So what this tells you is that most likely the Mundika culture or the Helmand culture was nothing but 
but an offshoot or a border area of the Saraswati Sindhu civilization era. And since these people, uh, the Mundigat people had uh, temples and forts and palaces, it tells us that the, the people of the Saraswati Sindhu era in some places had this. So let's take a look at the map and uh, see where this is, Shahar Isokhta and all that. Let's find that. Let's go back to our trusty old map. So where is Shahar Isokhta? It is, uh, let me Google that, Shahar Isokhta, the dry city or the burnt city. Shahar is Sakhtah. That's what they say in Persian. So as you can see, it is uh, west of present-day Afghanistan. It is in the extended Gandhara region. And other sites have been found in northern Afghanistan, even Tajikistan, even Turkmenistan. So, so what we see is that when Indian people move into Central Asia and all these deserted regions, their culture changes, their behavior changes, their traditions change. Maybe when you live in this sort of environment, you need you need forts because that's a dangerous, inhospitable terrain. And maybe you have uh, maybe you have other tribes who live there who are not very friendly with you. And maybe resources are so scarce that people have to fight each other for small resources. So maybe when you live in places like this, you need to build forts. And maybe that also causes uh, you to build temples or whatever so this is this is all speculation but what is very clear from the evidence that we just saw of the pottery and the art and the sculpture and the statuettes and the figurines is that the mundika culture is it shows the same cultural and artistic characteristics as the saraswati sindhu culture so yeah so like uh, this uh, the, the, the person descended of Rigvedic clan says it is certainly possible that the Saraswati Sindhu people did build forts, palaces, temples, but when they lived in these far off regions, not in not in the Saraswati Sindhu region, not in the Saptasindhu region. Okay, let's take some more questions. Sharma is big, says, Who was the best Roman emperor, according to me? And who do you think, uh, and do you think there was any Roman emperor that could be comparable to Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj or Maharana Pratap? Or any, were any of them really that great? Uh, thank you. Um, best Roman emperor. How do you define best? First of all, we have to define best. Do we mean the Roman emperor who conquered the most territory? Do we mean the Roman emperor who uh, made Rome the most prosperous? Do we mean the person who was the most uh, peaceful? So I'm not sure what is the criterion for the best Roman emperor. Uh, maybe the most successful. So obviously one has to, has to think of Augustus. Augustus was the first Roman emperor. And he ruled for, I don't know how many years, 30, 40, more than 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. And there were decades of civil war in Rome after the reign of Julius Caesar and all that stuff. So Augustus stabilized the Roman empire. And he brought in stability, political stability. And he uh, indulged in various military conquests. He expanded the territory of the Roman Empire. He also established a very stable system of government that, and that system lasted for centuries, essentially. And uh, he also had a significant cultural effect. He uh, did social reforms and social programs, um, building of various uh, 
projects, public works like aqueducts, temples, all that. So Augustus uh, has to be one of the great uh, Roman emperors. Then you have the Roman emperor Trajan, T-R-A-J-A-N, who uh, expanded the Roman empire eastwards. He conquered what's, what is what was then called Dacia, D-A-C-I-A, which is roughly present-day Romania. He also did lots of public works and built roads and uh, aqueducts and temples and all that. So uh, during uh, Trajan's time, I think the Roman Empire expanded to its greatest extent. And there, were, there was a huge amount of very high degree of prosperity very great interconnectedness of the entire region through roads and all that. So overall, for the citizens who were not slaves, it was a great time <laughs> during Trajan's time. Then you had Hadrian, who I believe succeeded Trajan. So Hadrian conquered the West. Trajan went all the way to Romania and conquered Romania. Hadrian conquered um, more of the British islands, including Scotland. And he is famous for the construction of the Hadrian's, Hadrian's Wall. Would you like to see Hadrian's Wall? It still stands in some places. Let's take a look at Hadrian's Wall. Let us Google that. Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall. So it's still there in parts. And it still stands. You can see this is Hadrian's Wall. So this was uh, the, the northernmost, if I'm not mistaken, extent of the Roman Empire. This was in Scotland. And it, it, it still stands to a large degree. This is how it would have looked like in the past. Yes. So, so that's what Hadrian do, did. He uh, built this, he built this wall which helped secure the northern part of the northern frontier of the Roman Empire. He conquered parts of Scotland. He established a stable rule over the British Islands. And obviously, he did lots of public works. He was a patron of the arts and sciences and did uh, constructed libraries and temples and baths and roads. And overall, it improved the quality of life for Roman citizens who were not slaves. <laughs> One has to keep specifying that. Then you had Marcus Aurelius, the great philosopher emperor who expanded the empire northwards into Germania. Yes. So he was known for his leadership during various, during a time of various military crises. And uh, he is also the author of the Meditations, Stoicism, a series of uh, personal reflections and moral guidance. So Marcus Aurelius uh, was successful in maintaining the stability and prosperity of the empire as long as he was alive. One could also throw in the name of Constantine the Great the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity, he essentially founded, or he didn't, he wasn't the founder of the uh, Eastern Roman emperor, Empire, but he played a significant role in that. So uh, he established the new capital of Constantinople, named after him. During his lifetime, it was called Byzantion, but after he died, it was called Constantinople. So this was the beginning of the Byzantine Empire, essentially, and the beginning of the rise of Christianity. So Constantine, well, was a very successful emperor. If you want to see the, an example of a not-so-successful emperor, let me show you this one. Give me a second. His name was Elagabalus. Take a look at this. So this guy, his name was Marcus Aurelius Antonius, also known as Elagabalus or Heliogabalus. He was a Roman emperor for four years between 2018 and 2022. He was the weirdest guy you can ever imagine. And uh, 
<laughs> if you want to know about him, he was eventually killed by his own soldiers, by the Roman Praetorian Guard, guard if, I, if I'm not mistaken. He and his mother both. And then his aunt took over or something like that. It's a very fascinating story. And yeah, this is this is an example of a not so great emperor or one of the worst emperors. So when times go, when, when an empire starts, uh, goes into decline, then you have such weird emperors that turn up, which you may see in other places in the world today also. So look it up if you are so interested, if you're interested in that. Ila Gabelus. Okay, Zhong Jina says, were Shakuni and Gandhari Pashtuns? So asking whether Shakuni and Gandhari are were Pashtuns is like, is like asking whether uh, whether uh, whether Hannibal Barca was Tunisian. There was no Tunisia during the time of Hannibal Barca. And similarly, there was no, there were no Pashtuns and there was no Afghanistan during the time of the Mahabharat when Shakuni and Gandhari were alive. So their descendants and their the descendants of their and their relatives who still live today are definitely Pashtuns. So Shakuni and Gandhari, who are siblings, who were siblings, were from the northern Mahajanapada of Gandhar, which is now Afghanistan, that region. But they were not Pashtuns. The Patnu Pashtun identity arose way, way, way later, most likely during the uh, Turkification of Afghanistan, when Afghanistan finally became Islamized. It's around that time that the Pashtun identity became a thing. It's like it's like asking whether uh, Yudhishthir was a Rajput. There was no Rajput identity during the Mahabharat time. The Rajput identity emerged much, much, much later. Yes, the the Rajput clans are all more or less the descendants of the royal clans, the aristocratic clans of the Mahajanapada era and maybe the late Vedic era also. But there was no Rajput identity then, then during that time. And similarly, during the Mahabharata time, there was no Pashtun identity. They were just people of Gandhar. So yeah, that's the answer. Pushpendra Singh says, what are your views on the finding of 92 closely located dinosaur nests and 256 fossilized eggs of herbivorous titanosaurs, one of the largest known dinosaurs, which has been found by a team of paleontologists in Dar district part of the Narbada Valley? My view is that it's wonderful. It's not a surprise that they found such a thing. India was home to God knows how many species of dinosaurs. India was, was a hotbed of dinosaur activity. Uh, up until 66 million years ago when we know what happened, the Chikshulub impact. And when this impact happened that killed off the non-avian dinosaurs, at that time India was an island in, in the Indian Ocean. Do you know that? Let's take a look. Um, let's go back to the map, the trusty old map. So, this is the map. So you can see this island over here of the eastern coast of Africa. It's called Madagascar. And you can see the shape of Madagascar kind of fits with the shape of Africa over here, like a jigsaw puzzle. It's because Madagascar, at, uh, about 120 million years ago, was part of the coastline of Africa. And so was the peninsular part of India. You can see the northern tip of Madagascar can perfectly fit into the neck of Gujarat. <laughs> so you can see it's all part of a jigsaw puzzle. So because of uh, tectonic activity, India and Madagascar detached from Africa. Madagascar stayed, stayed behind and India shot all the way across the Indian Ocean and slammed into Eurasia, which led to the formation of the Himalayas, the Himalayan mountain range. So about, so about 100 million years ago, India was still in the middle of the Indian Ocean. About 60, 70 million years ago, it was over the Réunion 
hotspot region over here, the Reunion Island. And that's when India uh, witnessed, the Deccan region of India witnessed incredible super volcano activity, the so-called Deccan traps, which may have contributed to the uh, demise of our non-avian dinosaur friends. And the, the, the impact event in Yucatan, Mexico also contributed to that. Uh, so there were lots and lots of dinosaur species all across India. And people have been finding dinosaur eggs and fossils for decades, for, for centuries in India. But for some reason, Indian scientists um, have not shown much interest. Paleontologists. I don't think paleontology is even much of a science in India. I was very surprised to know that we have paleontologists. On the other hand, the Chinese have turned paleontology into a large-scale industry. They have, they have discovered hundreds of, of, of new species of dinosaurs in China, including very well-preserved fossils, including fossils where the feathers are preserved, including fossils where the feathers are preserved with proper pigmentation. You can see the color of the feathers. You should know that most dinosaurs had feathers. The great T-Rex most likely also had feathers. And yeah... So the Chinese have taken a huge head start on this and it's really boosted the tourism because people want to go to these places, uh, these museums and see Chinese dinosaurs. I think India is also going to be home to incredible numbers of dinosaur species, maybe many species that are still not known to anyone. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a treasure waiting to be discovered and I'm not at all surprised that they found this big uh, treasure trove of dinosaur nests and fossilized eggs. I think this is just the beginning. We're going to find a huge amount more of this. Suraj Saini says, what's the legacy of Egyptian civilization apart from pyramids, mummies, and pharaohs? <laughs> what's the legacy of Egypt beyond pyramids, mummies, and pharaohs? Go to Egypt today. You won't see any of the old civilization and culture anywhere. It has been totally eradicated. So Egypt became part of the, it, it fell to the Arabian conquests about uh, 1200, 1300, maybe 1400 years before today. And uh, the native indigenous culture was, it. whatever happened to Iran later also happened in Egypt. Uh, so the native culture, the native civilization was totally destroyed, eradicated. It was almost impossible to destroy the pyramids, so they still stand <laughs> and so on. So Nothing of the old civilization and culture still exists beyond those visible symbols of monumental archaeology, the Sphinx, the, 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 the pyramids. And obviously they are they're preserving the mummies and all because it's a great source of income, revenue from tourism. Egyptology is a big deal. So all that. But today's modern Egyptian culture has nothing to do with the, with the original culture of Egypt. What's the legacy? I think the West kind of claims Egypt to be one of the sources of so-called Western civilization. According to the West, Western civilization originates in Greece, in Rome, in Mesopotamia and Egypt. And obviously among the, the, the Hebrew culture. So that's the, the, that's the source of Western civilization according to people in the West. Of course, that may or may not be true. We don't know. I mean, we, we do know. <laughs> so that at most is the legacy of Egyptian civilization that today the West lays claim to Egypt as one of the sources or, or fountainheads of Western civilization apart from that 
there's no other legacy. Yes, this monumental architecture still stands. People can go there and, and look at it, behold that in wonder and awe. Apart from that, nothing else. Sad. Swarup Vaidya says, in schools, if a 50-year-old teacher is not able to teach seven or eight subjects to kids, then why is a 12-year-old forced to learn these seven or eight subjects, which are mostly useless for them in the future? How? I completely agree. I have had, I, I mean, if you if you see my Ask Abhijit episodes, I don't know, 29, 30, 30, around there, I have about three episodes totally dedicated to education. And I've taken up these issues in that. Most of the subjects we are teaching kids are completely pointless. The only subjects you need to succeed in life are first of all language, which means communication. One or two languages is enough. Not five, six, seven, fifteen languages or three languages like we have today. One language or two languages at most. Firstly, you need language, communication, communication skills, written communication and verbal communication. And secondly, you need mathematics, but not not algebra, trigonometry, calculus, differential equations, and so on. So tensor calculus, matrices. No, none of that. You only need arithmetic to succeed in life. You are never going to use calculus or trigonometry in real life. You're never going to use algebra in real life. It helps if you know this. I mean, I love mathematics. I've learned mathematics to a very high degree. Very advanced mathematics. But I'm telling you this. You don't need any of that to succeed in life. You only need a very good grasp on addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, arithmetic. Mostly that. So you need to know a language or two languages really well. You need to be good at communicating and you need to be really good at arithmetic. Apart from that, it also helps if you know the world history and your culture. Apart from that, you don't need to learn anything. Yes, some science helps. Biology, physics, not much chemistry, so a little bit of education is needed, but the kind of education we are being given today is way, way, way more than what we need. It's it's overkill. It overburdens children. It makes their lives miserable. So yeah, I completely agree with Swarup Vaidya. And most of these teachers themselves, <laughs> they can hardly teach one subject. So yeah, we need to change things around. We need to reform the education system. The education system is about empowering students. The stakeholders are the students, not the goddamn teachers. And today, who are the stakeholders? It's the teachers. Ask yourself a simple question. If you misbehave in class, what's going to happen? You may be thrown out of school. Now ask yourself this question. If a teacher misbehaves, what's the, what's the consequences? Typically, nothing. Which means the education system treats the teachers and the staff as stakeholders, not the students. It's a complete reversal of roles. So yeah, we need uh, drastic, massive, major changes in the education system. And nothing of that sort is happening right now. The new, the new education policy does not address any of the core issues. It is like applying Band-Aid to a gunshot wound. Ishika says, last week I was having my class 12 biopractical exam. I made a beautiful investigatory project on genetic similarity between primates and humans. On that day, the examiner was just seeing the files and throwing them on the floor. I was so disappointed by this, as I literally spent two weeks for that project. So I wanted to ask you, how can this type of attitude of teachers, 
how can it be changed and how can this work of students be valued i i i know how you feel ishika <laughs> this is typical in the indian education system these people they so these teachers examiners are teachers they treat students as as worthless individuals and you may spend weeks preparing a project and they just, just they'll take a cursory glance at it and throw it in the, into a pile of trash that's how it's done they don't value students they don't value the sentiments and feelings of students and the work that students do the work they put in the problem is the education system it is because of the education system that such teachers are are well are are taken in and they thrive in the system you know in our culture indian culture they say that that uh, a guru is next to god well please understand today's teachers are not gurus there is a world of difference between a guru and a teacher in the 21st century today's teachers see a guru in the old days if you had a guru that guru was your guru for life and your guru never asked you for fees yes you could give a guru dakshina at the end of the day when you were done with your education but your guru would would not stop teaching you if you were for whatever reason unable to pay money right today's teachers the moment you stop paying the fees they will stop teaching you so today's teachers are not gurus they are service providers who are doing work who are working for you for a fee that's the difference <clears throat> so the education system needs to be changed i have spoken about this at great length um i have about 3 episodes about the education system i think it's uh around episode 30 plus or minus 1 or 2 uh so if you want to look into that uh, if you want to know my views about that you can watch those episodes um to change this attitude of teachers first of all teachers who who behave in this manner should be fired but that's not possible today because the education system treats the teachers as stakeholders not students so the entire education system needs to be revamped only then will things change as far as we are today this is the way it's going to keep on going unfortunate sorob says what are your views on the takeover of yoga by westerners uh, as of now even indians don't know the meaning of uh, of yoga for the for indians it's just for most people today it's just an exercise and nothing else nothing more even the yoga is interpreted differently as per the context of patanjali rishi who gave the definition of yoga as yoga chitta vritti nirodha sorry it's too small like which means chitta ki vrittiyon se nirodh pana yoga hai yes so today if you if you go to google you do a google image search for yoga you will see let's let's do it let's do it let's go to google let's let's do it in real time i have spoken about this before let's i'm happy to speak about it again just go to google and search for yoga go to images what do you see you will see mainly western people doing yoga most of them are people from the west you will hardly see any indian doing yoga at all in all these images it's the west it's the western perception of yoga and and for the west it's just an exercise it's all stretching that's what yoga is so th- so yoga has been taken over by the west it is being distorted and and destroyed by the west and i don't i don't blame them for that for it um the true meaning of yoga has been lost along the way so the true meaning of yoga is what you find in the yoga sutras of patanjali right and and yoga is is defined as stilling the 
the waves or the fluctuations of the mind. That's the definition of yoga. The 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 storms that you have in your mind, the unease, the the waves, the fluctuations, all of that. You need to still that. That is the true. That is what yoga really is. And yoga in the Patanjali Sutras has lots of branches or limbs. You have ethical principles. You have breath control, you have meditation, you have concentration, dhyana, you have sense withdrawal, you have physical postures, and it's all about ultimate liberation. So, yoga is about uh, ahinsa, non-harming others who don't deserve any harm. It's about truthfulness, it's about discipline, it's about not being greedy, it's about, it's about not stealing. It's all, it's all ethics, right? From that perspective, it's also about physical postures. So physical postures in yoga are described as a means of preparing the body and the mind for meditation. That's the true uh, purpose of all these physical postures, the asanas, right? And for the West, it's all stretching. It's all exercise. And yoga is also about breath control, pranayam. It's, it's, it's a very important tool. It's a fundamental tool for controlling the mind and for regulating the energy of the body. Meditation begins with breath control. So that's the foundation. And you have sensory withdrawal. Directing your indriyas, your senses inward and avoiding external sensory distractions. Where is that in the Western yoga? It's also about dhyana, concentration. It's a key step for developing a still mind and a focused mind, focused inwards, in, into, the in, into the internal universe. There are two universes, an external universe and an internal universe. So that's dhyana and meditation, obviously. It's the, it's the process of, of attaining a higher level of consciousness. And the goal, the ultimate goal of yoga is the attainment of moksha, liberation, and the realization of, of your true nature as pure consciousness. So ultimately, we are pure consciousness. That's what yoga says. And that is the goal of yoga. Liberation, moksha, and becoming pure consciousness. None of that is present in what the West does. They are doing uh, hot yoga and, and dog yoga and goat yoga and drunk yoga and God knows what other yoga. It is, it is, it's, it's terrible. And, and uh, so, so the question is, what do, you, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? India needs to establish a global standards institute of, institute of yoga in the same way that the Shaolin Temple is the global standards institute of Kung Fu. The same way we have to, we need to have our own global standards institute of yoga. And this institute should have the best people, real gurus, not fake gurus with, with PhDs. PhDs count for nothing. And this institute should define what yoga is and what yoga is not. Why are we not doing it? Do we lack money? Do we lack funds? We have the funds. It's not being done. It's a sense, it's a lack of leadership and a lack of caring about Indian culture. Yeah, so that's disappointing. But yeah, that's what I can say about this. All right, let's take some um, some of the questions. Heart Hacker Munda says, I am 22 years old. I want a strong, physically fit body. I also want to lose weight. Is it good for young guys like me to do water fasting or should we not do fasting and only focus on healthy diet and exercise? It's a good question. If you are young, I'm 22 years old, right? When you're 22, I would say, uh, see, what's the purpose of water fasting? I have done water fasting. I've done a lot. I've, I've done it in a, in a very, to an extreme degree. Well, 
my longest water fast was 23 days 23 days on only water not a single gram of food 23 days ridiculous crazy so i did a 23 day water fast i've done a 21 day water fast i've done a 14 day water fast i've done a couple of 7 day fast now a whole bunch of 4 day water fasts so i am i know this very well how it works when you do water fasting especially extended fasting what first of all what's the purpose of water fasting uh the real purpose of water fasting is is detoxification when you give your digestive system and your liver and other other organs some rest some respite then the body is able to detoxify itself there are lots of cells in the body that are that are uh, senescent cells damaged cells so these cells need to be destroyed otherwise they could cause cancer 20 years down the line so when when the body goes in a state of fasting 4 days plus then then the body enters a state of autophagy it it uh, recycles all these dead dying deceased senescent obsolescent cells destroys them and repurposes the materials that come out of it for building new cells so that is detoxification if you have any precancerous cells they will be destroyed in that uh so that's the real purpose of fasting obviously it also uh removes the need to the, the thought of food if you if you can do it and you can focus more on other work and all that uh, but the side effect it is that it may you lose a lot of weight you lose weight very rapidly drastic weight loss and and it uh, you're going to become quite weak physically you're going to get quite weak and you're going to lose weight in mostly in the form of fat tissue but you will also lose muscle mass you will lose muscle mass if you do an extended fast i know and it's not fun you go to the gym and work very hard lift heavy weights for a long time and then you lose that a significant portion of that in 2 weeks that's what happens when you do extended extended fasting so if you want to be strong and physically fit i would say please don't fast you can do a 4 day 3 day fast that's good for detoxification not more than that and not very often maybe once in 3 months or so is fine only for detoxification purposes what you should do is focus on a healthy diet and exercise weight training cardio is good running and all that but weight training is what you really need that's going to give you a strong body and physically fit body and of course it could also help you lose weight and a clean diet no processed food no junk food pizzas burgers all that garbage pastas eat clean good food lots of vegetables and whatever protein works for you so that's what i would say but so i would say focus on a healthy diet clean diet and regular exercise hopefully weight training that way you will have a strong physically fit body and you will also lose weight you will attain your ideal weight over a course of several months maybe 6 months maybe 12 months depending on how overweight you may be all right mr jesus says does weight training stunt your growth your height as a teen when did you start to train weight training does not stunt your growth as a teen what weight training does is that it makes your bones uh denser harder and stronger obviously you need to have an adequate uh, intake of of calcium for that so when you do that when you lift heavy weights it makes your bones tougher denser stronger and harder which is good for you it does not stunt your growth as a teen um take the most famous example arnold schwarzenegger the greatest bodybuilder of all time he started weight training at the age of 14 or 15 and he went on to be a reasonably tall man at 6 feet plus 6 1 or something so he is a tall imposing guy he did a lot of weight training heavy weights and he went on to be a tall guy uh, so yeah it uh, weight training is good for you it's not going to stunt 
your growth as a teen when did i start to train well um i've always been interested in in, in weight training and exercise i have the kind of body that's that likes that um so i said so when i was a teenager i did not have access to a gym i used to crank out hundreds of push ups in a day at times at times you know and uh, i was to improvise make makeshift weights and all that so i have always been interested in this i was also interested in sport when i was whenever i got the opportunity to play that so it's good you need to be physically active and do go ahead even if you're a teenager lift weights it's good for you it will not stunt your growth at all and with that i'm going to stop the questions i'm going to take some questions from the live chat let's do it for a few minutes um let us see what questions we have okay in case you have questions you want to ask in the live chat go ahead and do that now and i shall take up a few of these uh especially the interesting ones uh <laughs> where is it when you click on something it disappears om says please tell more about oroville is it really the city of the future i i haven't been there i was in puducherry last weekend and uh, for the for the g20 uh science initiation meeting and on the second day we were all supposed to go to oroville i skipped that i they, they did not find it very interesting for whatever reason i have been to the uh, orobindo ashram so oroville is this experimental city it's like a communal place where everybody does some work and everybody pitches in it's like a commune kind of thing i am not sure if it's the city of the future maybe it's the city of the past and uh, yeah so i am i'm i don't know a lot about it because i have not visited it people all do some kind of handicrafts work or they produce something at some level i think um, it's not quite the city of the future you know people may disagree this is my own pers- personal opinion if you, if you disagree please feel free to disagree but that's how i think it is obviously i am not an expert because i've not been there but i've read about it and that's what i think all right uh where, what else do we have Jasmine Raj Singh with my face on it. <laughs> okay, what's the mystery behind Rasputin's death? Rasputin, Grigory Rasputin was this great Russian mystic, uh, spiritual guru kind of person who was the the power behind the crown. Uh, about a hundred or so years ago, he died. Uh, he was the the mentor of the Russian queen or something, and. Uh, he was politically very powerful he was like the second most powerful person in the entire empire and then he was assassinated by a group of uh, soldiers etc maybe the british also had some hand in it it is believed and they said that they first tried to poison him they gave him a stick of cyanide in some food he ate it nothing happened to him and then they shot him and then once again he did not die and he walked away and then he had to be shot multiple times and all that he eventually supposedly died and then they burned the body and when they were burning the body it seems the body stood up or something that's the kind of legend you hear so uh, he was also stabbed apparently and even that did not kill him so yeah it, it the story that one hears that i that i read as a kid is that he was almost impossible to kill they tried to poison him they tried to stab him they shot him multiple times they eventually he's he died and when they burned him then the body tried to stand up or something <laughs> that's the kind of story one hears obviously a lot of it will be embellishments and exaggerations but yeah he was a very powerful man he was perhaps the power behind the crown at some point in time in the russian empire all right do we have any other question that i can take uh uh let's see let's see let's see 
what do we have? Boney M. Yeah, there's a song by Boney M. What Rasputin, Ra Ra Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. <laughs> sort of thing, yes. Let's see what else do we have. Uh, Chandan Verma, Sukhoi 57 jet, fifth generation fighter. Can India buy? I think India should focus on developing its own fighter jets. We now have the industrial and, and technological capability to, to build a fourth generation fighter plane the Tejas and we are now building 4 and 4.5 4, 4. generation fighter planes which is the LCA Tejas Mark II and the advanced medium combat aircraft and eventually the deck twin engine deck based fighter we are also developing a stealth unmanned stealth aircraft and so on I think India should focus entirely on developing its own aircraft stop buying things we may need to buy for the time being, a few aircraft from other countries. I think the Rafale is a good deal. We should not have 500 different kinds of aircraft. It's, it's a nightmare, logistical nightmare to service them all and acquire spare parts and all that. Keep it simple. In, in the next 20 years, India should be fully reliant on its own aircraft manufacturing capabilities. And I think in the next 20 years, India will be able to produce a fifth generation fighter plane, maybe even a sixth generation fighter plane. So that's what I think should happen. Uh, let's possibly take one more question. Do we have anything else? Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, lots of questions I can see. <laughs> Shivansh says, my opinion about Zelensky's demand to sanction India. Good, good luck, brother. <laughs> Zelensky. Uh, Listen, the Americans are in no position to actually sanction India. They need India on their side. The Chinese are playing wonderful games right now, sending balloons over the US. The US still needs a, something to balance China. And they also need something to balance India. So to balance India, they have Pakistan and to balance China, they are using India and Japan mainly, also Australia to some extent, not really. So I don't think the Americans are in a position to, to accede to Zelensky's demand to sanction India. When when you are a guy who works from home like Zelensky and makes billions of dollars, then you have these, these grandiose delusions of grandeur. So yes, uh, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's risible. It's funny to see this demand of Monsieur Zelensky to sanction India. Okay, I think we're going to end it over here. It's already two hours and seven minutes long, our mm -hmm. session. So we're going to end it here. Thank you so much for all the questions. I hope I have taken lots of questions today from different people. Of course, I had many more that I was supposed to take, but as always, one runs out of time. So thank you everybody for the questions. I'm getting thousands of questions every week and I really appreciate that. I'm in a privileged position that people ask me thousands of questions every week. So thank you very much to all of you for your questions, for your viewership. And I will see you very soon next week. Until then, take care. Thank you and bye.